Hello, I'm Tyler Smith, and this is More Than One Lesson, episode 135. I wanted to first uh, apologize that there was no episode last week. Uh, scheduling, you'd think that with three uh, potential co-hosts uh, that somebody could have done it, but uh, it was just a bad week for everybody, so I do apologize for that. Uh, in the meantime, we have someone here now. It's an old friend. He hasn't been on an actual episode since I think May, uh, but you've still heard him consistently in the uh, in the uh, Best of Pictures minisodes. But he's here now. It's my uh, my original and let's face it, my best co-host, Josh Long. Josh, it's me. How you doing? Has it been since May? Really? Yeah, I think the last full episode you were on was uh, Gone Girl. I think. Wow. So yeah, yeah, that was a long time ago. What have you been doing since then? Uh, just sleeping mostly. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I could see that. <laughs> I'm joking, of course. He's been working a great deal, uh, and that's partially why uh, a good portion of, of why we switched to the new format, because you were out of town for like two months. Yeah. Right? Like just shooting stuff, and then you're on a shoot. You were on a shoot last week and this week, and I don't know. You're just uh, you're a very sought-after commodity when it comes to being an assistant director. Well, of course. I don't know if that's true or not, but... It's weird. Are there, are there egotistical assistant directors? I don't mean to say that the position is lowly. It it really isn't. Oh, no. uh, but like, you know, are there people who are just jerks about it? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Because the because part of the job is like managing the set. So that's like uh, uh I I think that there are some ads who are kind of like the boss from Dilbert, like that kind oh, of okay. guy. Yeah. Yeah. Who uh, don't totally know what's going on all the yeah. time, but are very loud and opinionated and uh, forceful. I love the design of that boss. <laughs> Just everything about him. Everything about him says doofy. Yeah. <laughs> and then on the uh, Dilbert cartoon, he was voiced by Larry Miller. That's right. That's and that, uh, that is d- completely was, right. Yeah. That was a good choice. But, um, but yeah, we're, well, we're uh, happy to have you back right now. And then we uh, still need to record several minisodes. But that means I need to watch The Deer Hunter I mean, like I've seen, I've quote unquote seen it. I don't remember. It was years ago. It's been like 15, 16 years since I've seen it. Oh, okay. It. Uh, I remember quote unquote seen it makes it sound like, well, I didn't see it, but I saw it. And yeah. I was, like, was, was listening. It was playing in the next room. Um, no, I, I remember. And you know what? It might, it, when I think about it, it's like there are sequences that I feel like I should remember. Like, anything having to do with the war mm-hmm. but i don't, don't i remember the, the wedding well yeah because it's still going on yeah um and i think honestly it's entirely possible that's what i saw and then i didn't finish the movie oh, but really? then i but then i mentally just through cultural osmosis you remember you know the uh, the ending uh, yeah yeah the russian roulette scene mm-hmm. and stuff like that so that's the thing i'm i'm i think i'm gonna rewatch it and i think at some point like I'll remember all the wedding stuff, and then uh, or bachelor party stuff or whatever, whatever you want to call it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I think it's going to drop off, and I'll be like, "Oh, I didn't finish this movie." I think that's <laughs> probably what it's going to be. Maybe or everything will come rushing back to me. I'm not uh, really maybe. sure. Maybe that'll be so, interesting. That's a thing that happens from time to time. And I feel like the fact that I don't remember it very well speaks to my view of the film, but maybe also I was young and wasn't ready to watch it. Maybe, maybe. Um, That's definitely happened with some films to me. There was one that actually wasn't that long ago, because I was going through trying to watch a lot of uh, Louis Malle films, and 
someone specifically recommended to me. They were like, oh, you should watch The Fire Within. Mm-hmm. I think it was The Fire Within. And I was like, oh, okay, cool. And I got You're thinking it. of Fire Down Below oh. starring Steven Seagal. That is uh, <laughs> that's Mal's best like, film. This isn't French. <laughs> um, but no, I got, I got like 20 or 30 minutes into it. And I was like, I think I've seen this movie before. Yeah. And then I kind of skipped around to some of the later scenes. And I was like, I've totally seen this movie before. Now, why... That happens a lot more with TV shows uh, with me, where I will, you know, because when you're a kid, you absorb TV, and there are shows that you would just watch because they're on, or they're the show that's on before the one you want to watch, and and when you grow up, you remember the one that you wanted to watch. Uh That one you recall. And then somebody will post something on Facebook or Twitter or, you know, whatever, and then I start watching it or I hear just a little burst of music and everything just comes rushing back like a freight train. It's like, yeah. not only did I see this show, I saw it a lot and yeah. it was a big part of my life. <laughs> and uh, like there was a, like I remember I was a kid and I watched Nickelodeon. There was a show that was too young for me, but I knew about it called The <laughs> Elephant Show. Oh, yeah, I remember that one. And it had that skidamarinky dinky dink. Yeah. That's all. If you'd ask me like, hey, do you remember that song? I'd say, absolutely. And you, if you said, what's that from? I'd say, I have no <laughs> idea at all. And then that song got stuck in my head for some reason the other day. So I looked it up and saw that it was from The Elephant Show. Mm-hmm. And I was like, that's right. There was a show called The Elephant Show. Yeah. It was a big deal on Nickelodeon, according to the, these ratings reports. Yeah. And I had no memory of it except for that one song, huh. which admittedly was a big part of it. But um, I don't know. It's just, it's, it's fascinating as we get to, Josh, we're getting older. Oh yeah. Know? Every day. Every sing, every, hang on. I'm older now. Ooh. Now even older. Oh man! There's a uh, there's a they might be giants song uh, about that that I that I love it uh, where it just goes. I'm not going to sing it, but it, it starts with "You're older than you've ever been, and now you're even older, and now you're even older, and now you're even," and just keeps going <laughs> like that. It's marvelous. Um, anyway, uh, we've got things to get to the episode, for example. Um, but this is what happens when Josh comes on. You know, you're not going to get this kind of stupid, stupid small talk <laughs> with Robert or Reed. Only when Josh comes on. You might. brings nothing to the show. You might get some kind of stupid small talk. No, no, no. We'll get small talk, but it'll actually be very purposeful. Oh, purposeful When you small come talk. on, you get well, the stupid, want, idiotic small talk. Who wants purposeful small talk? What's the good in that? What's the purpose in that? Uh, boy, uh, I feel like I got to go back to the meaning of words now. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Okay, well that's fine. We've, I think we've got words are to... overrated. I just I was just thinking about that. You know. You know what? I, think I thought that... I'd say it. <laughs> yeah, and and the minute you did, you're like, I regret saying that. Yeah. I shouldn't have. You well, know why? So many words. words. Yeah. Um. So okay. So we are talking about the bill. I believe that's uh, Poland or Poland. Uh, hard to say, mm-hmm. uh, film Love and Mercy. All right. It is written by Oren Moverman and Michael A. Lerner, and it is about the life of Brian Wilson. Now, if only one of us was a big fan of the Beach Boys, I feel like we'd be able to speak more authoritatively about this film, but as it is, we both hate them. Uh, you know, especially especially that Christmas song, 
Okay. It's hurting me to pretend. <laughs> Here's the, this is why you had to quit acting because oh, just, you kept playing, you kept auditioning for characters that hated the beach boys. And then I would like <laughs> make this gritting my teeth uh, face. Uh, Mr. Long, I'm sorry. Can you, uh, can we try that again? Um, yeah, I hate the beach boys. They're so terrible. Uh, so, of course, I'm joking. Uh, I like what I've heard of the Beach Boys, which is probably what everybody else has heard. Uh, I I like, with of course the exception of that ugh, that terrible song, Little Saint Nick. I believe it's oh, called. Oh yeah, Little Saint Nick. Little Saint Nick. It's, it's a even great one. Ca- like even the title bothers me. Little Saint. And there's nothing little about Santa Claus. Why are they no, calling? It's it not that? about him. It's about, it's about the car. It's about okay. Yes, that's a slut. That, yeah okay and so because it's basically to the it, tune of little deuce coop if you go if you listen to it it's the same song let me imagine it okay i could see that they just modified the tune a little right, bit to make so. it terrible um <laughs> to make it Christmassy. Ugh. and then you know just that little and the, you know my least favorite part of the song yes i do christmas comes this time each year yeah thanks Yep, sure does. If they had, again, I've said it before. If they said Christmas comes but once a year, then that's a reminder that, hey, you know what? Enjoy it while you, while you can because it's only once a year. But if it's this time in, each year, Let's it's... See, if they said that, I would forget which time of year it came. This this time. This, oh, this time. See, now I understand. Ugh. Thanks for clearing that up, Mike Love. Terrible song. <laughs> Terrible song. But uh, don't get me wrong. Occasionally, I guess the Beach Boys do all right. They, they sure do. They get around, you might say. Ugh. They're having fun, fun, fun. Until when? I don't know. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> I have to assume it stops at some point, right? No, I don't think so. Oh, man. Oh, no, wait. I saw the movie. Yes, it does. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's <laughs> almost immediately, as it turns out. <laughs> um, yeah, so uh, I'm... I'm, I'm I'm tempted to just ask you about like your history with the Beach Boys or anything like that, but we want to try and keep this episode somewhat short, uh, shorter than two hours anyway, shorter mm-hmm. even than an hour and a half would be preferable. Um, and so we're going to basically jump right into it, and I will talk about what, I mean, talk sort of about my association with biopics, mm. because for the most part, I think I recognize the use of them in film. I can, I can certainly point to a few that I think are great and very, very effective. But for the most part, I would say I don't care for them. Hmm. Um, just because there's just such a... Hollywood has just locked into such a formula for them that, uh, that after a while, you just it's, it's almost like watching a VH1 behind the music, which I don't know if they've done that in 10 years, but... <laughs> Almost, it just invariably, there would be, you know, a, a downward spiral, um, and uh, and someone would someone was sick and tired of being sick and tired. I remember I heard that I think like twice, um, <laughs> and so there's just beats that you need to hit. Uh, maybe because a person's, li- uh, you know, this famous person's life falls into that formula, and so mm-hmm. that's why they're telling the story. Um, yeah, but. Uh, so I went into this being like, all right, well, it's about Brian Wilson. And I know his life was not an easy one. And I know he had a lot of mental problems. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I went in sort of expecting maybe some kind of sort of like a beautiful mind, but without the intrigue aspect of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I will say that 
almost invariably, uh, when I think of this film, I think of a good biopic. I think of a very one that I thought was very effective. Admittedly, maybe because I only vaguely knew the story. Hmm. Um, you knew more about it. You know more about Brian Wilson. And so mm-hmm. as you and I were leaving the theater, you know, you you were questioning your own reaction to it. Yeah. Um, can you explain why? Well, I, because I think I know, know so much about the Beach Boys and I listen to the music so much, there was almost a sense of... I'm trying to think of uh, identified in other movies. I know I've seen other movies where a lot of times it happens in sequels uh, where they're almost kind of winking at you a lot. Like, look, here's that thing that you like Mm -hmm. or uh, in reboots. I think it happens a lot in reboots. They make sure they get lines in there that are, uh, that are kind of a wink at the fans. Yeah. They've done that with the rise of the planet of the apes, which is still a good movie, but they, they incorporate a couple of things and to kind of turn them on their head. It's like, okay, good for you. But at the same time, like it's not necessary. There's a moment with tribbles in one of the new star Trek ones. It's kind of like, okay, well that doesn't really fit, but it's like, and and those movies have more of a lighthearted feel. So maybe works a little bit better in those as kind of a, a, there's a, uh, fun attitude to them. Um, so sometimes I get that feeling with real life stories when it, it it's almost as if they have to put in little little tidbits here and there. They're like, "Hey, if you know about uh, yeah. if you know about this, then you'll remember, uh, you know, you'll remember this moment or you remember that moment." Or when they lead up to talking about something, uh, when they lead up to talking about like a song that they're about to discover or something, and you yeah. can tell ahead of time. It almost can seem cliched to to hear people talking about something that we already all know what it is in that way. Well, and that's the thing. When you say we, I feel like the the problem with a lot of biopics is that they have to try to appeal to everybody. They need mm-hmm. to justify their own existence in the mind of the fan. Mm-hmm. Um Listeners of Battleship Pretension know that last year, one of my least favorite movies of the year was a documentary about Orson Welles, yeah. which was basically like if Reader's Digest did a little biography of him, because mm-hmm. it doesn't delve deep enough into him or his work to intrigue me. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's, but also it's specific enough that if I didn't know anything about Orson Welles, I feel like it might whet my appetite to dig deeper, but at the same time, I probably wasn't seeing the movie in the first place. Like the Mm -hmm. only people that would see a movie about Orson Welles are people that already know about him. Um, And so it just, Mm -hmm. it seemed like a complete waste of time. And I feel like uh, a lot of biopics, they feel like they need to speak to somebody like me. And even I knew more than I thought I did uh, going in. Uh, But people like me who don't know much about Brian Wilson, Mm -hmm. but then they also feel like they need to uh, reward people like you who do know and give a little wink to you like, this is just between you and me. The rest of these people are finding out new things, but this is just between you and me. And I feel like it can be very wry, very knowing, and eventually insufferable. Yeah. Hey, look, everybody, it's Van Dyke Parks or something like that. Sure. Whose name I uh, happen to see in the credits. Yeah. (laughs) Um, But uh, so it's... So do you feel like it was a little bit too clever or I, I still can't decide whether I actually feel that way about it or whether I feel like that is naturally a, a, a condition of the film or whether that is something that I was just bringing to it because I was kind of pre 
prejudging or pre-guessing what was mm-hmm. going to happen. Um, I don't think it was enough so that it distracted me from liking the film. Um, yeah, because I think the aspects that I liked about it were not the aspects that were just showing Beach Boys stuff. Right. Um, I think the aspects that were most interesting were kind of the the way it... Uh, the, the way it dealt with the two different Brian's, the past and the future one. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I, I liked a lot of stuff of his, the future Brian's relationship. Yeah. Um, and some of the, some of the themes that we'll get to talk to. And so I, yeah. I don't feel like the, uh, the other stuff took away from that necessarily, but I could see other people who are real big fans um, of the Beach Boys feeling like it's being too clever. Of course, I say that then, um, and my my dad saw the movie, and he he uh, he liked the Beach Boys a lot when he was younger. You know, mm-hmm. he had had their records and stuff when he was a kid, and he loved the movie. He came out, yeah. you know, loving it. So, and you know, he was around when that stuff right. was happening, so he knows more about it than I do. I do think that one of the advantages. Another complaint that I have with biopics, especially if it's uh, of an artist, whether it be a filmmaker or a writer or a, a musician or something, um, is that they will, in the spirit of, well, we don't want to just show people what they already know. Mm-hmm. Rather than do that, they'll just show like this person for who they really are. It's it's that I the 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 term is warts and all. They will show right. that this person had their flaws like everybody, but they will often go way too far in that direction. Yeah, and this person will be so insufferable that you wonder why am I watching a movie about this person? And the reason you're wondering that is because they have avoided showing why you're watching a movie about this person. Mm-hmm. I saw a film called Gainsbourg about Serge Gainsbourg, who mm-hmm. I know very little about. And by the end of it, I thought, so it's a story about this monster of a human who I guess occasionally wrote songs. Is that it? I'm sorry. Was that it? Like it just, it, it was very frustrating. I feel like this is a film that does, that does it right. I think it celebrates, mm-hmm his music mm-hmm. um, while also not steering away from the tragedy of his mental issues. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and by, and I think the, the way that it does it is that it, sh- we hear the, the music itself, but I think almost anybody is familiar with this music. They mm-hmm. may not know any of the stories behind it. Um, but one sequence that I actually liked a lot because there's a real sense of urgency and uh, a real vibrant excitement there is when they're going to start doing, uh, they're going to start recording, I think, uh, God Only Knows. Mm -hmm. And so the the studio is just full of musicians. Now, there are moments when uh, Brian is explaining to somebody the nature of a certain musician's, you know, uh, role to play and, and... in doing so, he's explaining it to us, and in you know, in your case, you didn't need it explained. But putting that aside, him doing that shows just how much goes into this song mm-hmm. that we have all come to know and love, and that we wouldn't necessarily think is cutting edge, but they show just how cutting edge it is. Yeah, like even even having like uh, you know the uh, the jingle bells or mm-hmm. or like the sleigh bells in mm-hmm. the song. Well, you would never think of sleigh bells. In any song, you'd think, well, isn't that going to take us out of it? Mm-hmm. And only when you realize, oh, no, that plays a, an important role in the finished song. And 
when you think of these elements individually, that each of them seems out of place, but he is somebody who thinks of them all together. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, to me, showing, showing the creative process or the process of creation is always a really good thing when telling the story of an artist, because that goes a long way of showing, uh, of justifying how much time we'll spend on stuff that isn't creative. Um, because then you see, you get a sense of, uh, who this person is overall. Yes. They've got a lot of problems and isn't that tragic, especially because look at how great they are in this other regard. Yeah. Um, and I think one of the interesting things about this one in particular is that the, uh, I guess his mind is both, uh, the thing that made him a, a musical genius, but mm-hmm. it's also the thing that, that dragged him down. It's kind of the same. Yeah. It's just two sides of the same coin. Like the, the, he was only able to bring music like that together because he was a little bit disturbed and because he, I right. don't know, it, it's as if the two things had to go together and they created something wonderful, but at the same time couldn't sustain yeah. a, a regular life. Yeah, and and what I like is that so the companion film for a while was going to be Shine. Did you ever see Shine? I haven't seen that. That's what I need to see. Uh, but it was actually too close of a comparison. I didn't want it to be exactly that. Yeah. And so um, biopic of a yeah, musician with mental uh, with mental problems and a pretty oppressive father. Hmm. Um, and so, but yeah, uh, for, for the most part. Not even for the most part. It's one of my favorite movies of the year. It's in my top ten at the moment. Mm. It's entirely possible that as the year continues and we go into the Oscar months that it will be bumped out. Mm-hmm. But maybe not. I don't know. There's a lot of things that really resonated with me. Mostly the uh, the way the film is made and just the, the way they chose to tell the story. It's not a straightforward biopic. As you mentioned, there's, there's Brian Past and Brian Future. We see him in the 60s and we see him in the 80s at very different times in his life. In the 60s, when he is at the apex of his uh, creative success, he and the Beach Boys are making a great deal of money, and he is now starting to demand more of himself artistically, and that is getting him in some hot water with his bandmates, with uh, culture in general, mm-hmm. and it's when you see some of his mental problems starting to really take shape mm-hmm. and maybe even take hold. Um, and then it'll, it'll show the 1980s, when well he's a star now like everybody knows who he is but he is smack dab in the middle of a very very toxic almost brainwashing situation with this psychiatrist who has who has misdiagnosed him as a paranoid schizophrenic Mm -hmm. and has heavily over medicated him and is now controlling his yeah, life. Has wormed his way into yeah. being his. He's like his manager too, kind of. Yeah, it's a mix his, of all these unhealthy. And he's things. his legal guardian. Like right. he has total control over yeah. his life. Yeah. Um, and so it seems so strange that oh, we're going to tell the story of Brian Wilson. It seems like you would focus completely on the '60s. Mm-hmm. If not, if you're not going to tell his whole life, then you would do maybe the Capote thing and focus on the creation One, of Pet Sounds. Right. Yeah. You know, um, but the fact that they chose these two big parts of his life um, is such a fascinating choice and one that I think actually works really well because 
almost invariably when there are parallel stories being told, whether they, it be two separate characters or one character in two separate times, um, I will almost invariably uh, focus, like, I will prefer one to the other. Yeah. And oftentimes it's just one telling a story about the other. Yeah. Yeah. Like Um, English patient or something. Sure. Um, But then recently we had Reed on to talk about saving Mr. Banks and we are seeing the grown up uh, PL Travers. Um, Is it PL? Oh shoot. I think that's right. Okay. I thought so. I was like PG. No, that's Wodehouse. Um, But uh, PT, that's Barnum. Oh oh, man. (laughs) PT. Oh, that's also Anderson. Um, <laughs> but uh, we're seeing a grown-up PL Travers, and then we're seeing her like her backstory. But her backstory plays a big part of the film, and it's actually, as Reed and I were saying, it's interesting in and of itself. But what's infinitely more interesting is when she's a grown-up talking with Walt Disney, and we're seeing the creative process. We're seeing a lot of pushback, uh, but then we get some of her history as a young person uh but it's clear one is feeding into another we're seeing a cause and effect whereas with this i really do think it's parallel storylines um that obviously because one is the past and one is the future we will point back to certain things in the past but not completely there are two each one probably could have justified its own movie mm-hmm. but they choose to bring these two things together and i found each one just as interesting as the other when it, and you wouldn't think so. You would think that him creating pet sounds is by far the most interesting thing. And it is interesting, but then you're so, you're so aware of the tragedy of the situation he's in, in the eighties. And you so badly want him to get out of it mm-hmm. that I'm, that I'm invested and I want, you know, I keep wanting to get back to that and I keep rooting for good to win. Mm-hmm. Um, that, for me, the format, it's such a such an odd choice that pays off wonderfully for me because between the two, I think I have a pretty good uh, image of Brian Wilson's life as a musical, I'd venture to say, genius. I know mm-hmm. a lot of other people have. A musical genius who just has had his own issues but also has just had been so thoroughly exploited by the people around him mm-hmm. and just the process of him getting free and being his own person mm-hmm. um put these two things together and you get this very complete picture of that mm-hmm. um what did you think about the structure and the choice to tell these two stories instead of just one i think that somehow i i think that does make it more interesting because you you get I think it's an easy way to an easy way, but I think it's a smart way to get a more fuller view of a historical figure's life mm-hmm. because you know you talked earlier about exploring one moment uh, or one big you know key point in someone's life. Well, because this explores two key points and they're far apart, mm-hmm. uh, I, I feel like it gives a fuller picture of you know what his whole life was like. If you would focus on just the eighties one, then you don't really understand where he came from and, um, you know, who he was as a musician and how much things have changed for him for the worse. Um, and if you don't, if you only see the sixties part, you don't, you don't really get the full picture of how things are going to go downhill. Yeah. Like you get a sense that there's something going downhill, but I, I think if you were to just have that part, you'd think, well, what it would be a very much more, be a much more depressing ending yeah um and i I don't know i I feel like 
the 80s timeline uh, helps every, everything seem like it's going to be okay from the 60s timeline. Right. And I think the 60s timeline gives more gravitas to the 80s timeline. Yeah. Yeah, I think so as well. And it, and it, But it also really makes you realize, for me, that while everything will be okay eventually, when you think about it, the fact that things are not... Again, Pet Sounds is critically well-received. Commercially, it is not. Mm-hmm. Um, and he has to fight against a lot of people to get it made. Yeah. Um, and so things are theoretically going... It, like, that's tough, but then he also does Good Vibrations, which is, like, their biggest hit ever. So, like, mm-hmm. good things are happening for him and the Beach Boys, but they're going bad for him. Right. And so, when right. you look at that, and then you look at the 80s, you realize, like, this, this was 20 years of tough life. Oh, yeah. Where he just got so much worse. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, that was probably the worst part of his life. Yeah. It was, I mean, there was there was that period where he, j- he didn't get out of bed for years yeah. or whatever. And, like, got up to, like, 300 pounds, like, yeah. Yeah, which is, I mean, that's crazy to think about. Yeah. Um, and also, like, from a musical standpoint, and I, I know they, they get into this a, a little bit in the movie, but uh, what was happening is after they made that, or, you know, recorded so much for the smile album Mm -hmm. um because they couldn't finish it because of his you know his mental state and the the arguments with the band and everything like that he just had to sit back and basically watch them dismantle it and turn it like pieces of the songs would show up on other albums in different versions that weren't really you know that never could be the vision that he had for them and so he you know he didn't tour with them anymore he's kind of relegated to the side while they take his these masterpieces of his, uh, you know, at least in his mind and just turn them into something else so that they can try and make some money off of them. Well, and I, I, I do think that's, it's not necessarily a big flaw or anything, but at the end when they're, you know, when they're putting up the cards saying what happened to this person, what happened to this person and talks about Brian Wilson and that, you know, decades later he was finally able to make smile his way. Mm-hmm. And part of me felt like, that's great. I'm glad to hear that. I feel like you haven't necessarily earned that card because if you're going to show that as though it's a big moment of triumph, which it is in his life, mm-hmm. um, I feel like it wouldn't hurt to see more of him working on Smile and having it taken away. Yeah, that's true. Um, that That is a pretty small part of the movie. And, and possibly that's because it's not as well known as that yeah. sounds. I mean, that... that uh, the version that is the closest thing that there will ever be to the sixties version only got released like three years ago or something yeah. like that. So that's, that hasn't had enough time, you know, you know, that hasn't had 40 years to become part of the collective right. consciousness. Yeah. And I'm sure, and I mean, I'm sure there are like big Brian Wilson fans, big beach boys fans who to them, anything he releases now is just as important as anything he's ever released because mm-hmm. he has so much control now. Mm-hmm. But I think for culture in general, what Brian, like Brian Wilson's impact was in the sixties and yeah, he's still making stuff good for him, but that's it. They don't mm-hmm. care. Yeah. Um, so yes, it is, it is a tragedy. Um, and so, uh, but yeah, it, it does have, uh, an optimistic ending. And I think the optimistic ending is earned when you realize that there's a 20 year gap between these things. And in that time, things didn't go well. Mm-hmm. So it's like, it, there's a sad moment. There's a very, a, a really sad moment when you realize that like, there's a lot of stuff we're not seeing and all of it was bad. Yeah. <laughs> and some of it was maybe even worse. Although yeah. it's the grip that that psychiatrist had on him. It's hard to imagine things like, even when he can't get out of bed, even when he's 300 pounds, like those are very, 
tangible things we can point to and say, look how bad they got. Mm-hmm. But he didn't have another person manipulating him and holding on to him. Yeah. And I feel like that's actually worse, but it's a bit more intangible. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's let's talk about some of the technical elements and some of the uh, artistic elements. Uh, specifically, I would like to talk about the acting. Um, so Paul Dano plays Brian Wilson past. John Cusack uh, plays Brian Wilson future. Elizabeth Banks plays Melinda Ledbetter, who uh, future Brian meets, and then she will go on to ma- uh, play a big role in his life. Paul Giamatti plays the psychiatrist in the eighties. And then, and those are the big, I say big four characters. It's weird. Cause one of them is the same character, but <laughs> it might as well be, you know, right. At the, very, at the very least, Paul Dano doesn't look like he would grow into John Cusack, but I, I'm fine with that. You yeah. know, um, that just, they picked the actor that I, that would do well in the sixties and they picked an actor that would do well, uh, for the eighties. Hmm. Um, and I think the acting is uniformly great in some cases. Uh, like I would say John Cusack, I think it's a career best. Um, mm. Either that or being John Malkovich. Um, yeah, yeah. But, uh, and when I say that, I I guess I say that because even it might not actually officially be a career best, but when I think of John Cusack as a limited actor who is very good at the things that he does, um, but will always have a certain degree of coolness to him mm-hmm. and, uh, and detachment. Mm-hmm. And so to see him play a character who is as frightened and as, uh, at times he's very, the character is very deadened because he's so overly medicated, but you see the desperation in him when he sees this woman in his life that is a positive thing. And he's terrified to lose her because yeah. she's all he has. Like yeah. those scenes are great. Uh, yeah. on the part of, of uh, John Cusack. Yeah, I think so. I think that there's these scenes when he, because he's turned into this person who has no agency in his own life, and then mm-hmm. when he realizes what it means to not have that, and right. when something's actually at stake, suddenly, like, the, the change that he goes through is, is really interesting, I think. I think it's a, it's a it's, yeah, it's a really good performance. I, for me, it's, it was a weird casting choice a little bit. Um to the point that I, I, I either didn't know or had forgotten going into the film that they were doing two timelines like that. Mm. So suddenly when we go to the eighties and we see John Cusack, I'm like, who is this character? Like, no. who is this going to be? And then as it gets into it, I think it wasn't until he says something about his brother dying. Right. That I was like, Oh, that's he's, he's Brian. Um, and maybe it's the look that gets me. I don't feel like it looks like him. I don't know. Mm. Um, but I feel like that only stuck with me for, you know, maybe the first scene. And then after that, it was, uh, you know, I was kind of forgetting about the look thing and focusing more on, on the character, on the performance. And I, and I really, I really liked it. I really liked what he was doing with it. Now I know that there are some people, and I, I guess I understand why to a point. Um, there are people that do not like Paul Dano as mm-hmm. an actor. Um, maybe it's because, uh, and I know this sounds terrible, but I, this isn't me, but I know people who often just don't like the look of him. He has a very distinct look. Uh, He looks young. Mm -hmm. Like he looks like a kid that has grown into a man, which (laughs) admittedly that's what we all are, but he looks like he has retained the kid elements. Um, And so, uh, and just, and the type of voice he has, I think he just has a very, uh, a very unique quality to him that i think some people just have a hard time accepting Mm. um 
but I think he is a tremendous actor. I remember really thinking he was great in There Will Be Blood. Mm-hmm. I thought he his his remarkably tough uh, and uh, evil role in Twelve Years a Slave is one of the better parts of the film. Oh yeah. Um, and you know what? I didn't. I did not like Little Miss Sunshine, but I liked him in it. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, yeah, and and I thought. As young Brian, I thought he was really great, partially because, you know, both both Brian's are in a state of transition. In the case of future Brian, it's things have been a certain way for a long time, like you said, and realizing, oh, I don't have any control over my own life, and I don't like that. Mm-hmm. So, for him, he's transitioning into embracing better. Mm-hmm. In the case of paul dano it's the acknowledgement that things are getting worse yeah and and for the first time and he doesn't know what that means yeah like he has a panic attack on on a plane and nobody really knows exactly what that means and he doesn't know he doesn't know what to do with it and so he just doesn't like just stops touring with them yeah and then there's a moment when he's explaining what happened to somebody and then makes a joke out of it you know about Mm -hmm. and because that's probably what he has done in the past uh, is he just uses humor and stuff to, to deflect or just that's his natural instinct. Uh, but as, you know, and we see him trying to latch on to the things that he's known before, um, specifically music. Like, okay, that is, a, that is a thing that he can trust. He can trust his music. He can trust his ability. But it even starts to creep into that when yeah. he comes up with more and more outlandish ideas for albums some of them of course are outlandish because they're ahead of their time and some mm-hmm. are outlandish because they're completely unfeasible <laughs> um and he starts to get more and more paranoid and it's and it's a tragic thing to watch that transition but he hasn't transitioned completely that, that to me seems like one of the most terrifying things ever about you know this is a over this is a reduction, but the most terrifying thing about losing your mind is there's a time when you haven't completely lost it, but you know, you're losing it. Like mm-hmm. you're coherent enough to know that you're becoming more and more incoherent. That yeah. sounds so horrible to me. Uh, and that is the moment that is his story in the film. And mm-hmm. I think he plays it again. There's a lot of desperation in the character in both the past and future. And I think he plays th- that desperation very palpably. Yeah. Um, but we also see the invigoration of when he is making music. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that's a hard thing to pull off as well as like when the juices are flowing and you almost feel like you've tapped into something that's bigger than yourself. Yeah. Um, so it, what, just in general, what is your opinion about Paul Dano? Do you like him? Did you like him in this part? I think I did like him in this part. I, I feel like there were a couple moments when I couldn't decide whether I felt like he was being too big. Hmm. Um, but I definitely liked all the stuff where he's uh, of of him in the studio, mm. and um, I like I like the way he plays the struggles that he has with the quote unquote authority figures in his life, right? Um, and how I, I I guess you 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 feel his struggle of of feeling under these people's thumb, but not feeling like he can say anything about it, not feeling right. like he can change anything about it and just kind of letting it go. And, uh, I, maybe letting it go is the long, the wrong turn of phrase. I mean, just letting it, allowing it to happen, um, is, is a better way to say it, I guess. 
there's a there's a, a moment, uh, a couple moments in his performance that are completely nonverbal, in which you see his demeanor change once somebody else enters a room. Hmm. Um, not just anybody, but like you know, his band is tour is on tour, and he's been working out some stuff while they've been on tour, and they come in and they're excited and they're upbeat, and mm-hmm. he's seemingly excited for them, but you see how he was before they came in and how he is after. Yeah. And you can tell, it's like, I'm going to have to pitch some stuff to these people that they are right. not going to like. Yeah, you can really feel it. And I feel like we've all had a moment like that where it's like, oh, now we have to, now it's become uncomfortable, you know? Yeah. And, uh, especially... Or you're anticipating the discomfort and just like... Okay, here we go. Right. Like it's that that kind of thing. Right. And in a sort of place where he he like I say has given them some kind of a, a place above him at least at least with Mike um that he he feels like he has to prove himself to them. And that's coming on the heels of having complete control in the studio and not having to to explain himself to anyone, you know. Yeah. Having these studio musicians who not only will just play by his rules when he asks, but know enough about music to come to him and say, you're really on to something here. Yeah. And it's just, and it's so interesting to talk about the way the character is written is that, you know, you mentioned the idea of, I I like that word agency, that he has no agency in his life, but that doesn't start in the Mm eighties. You know, it's very much in the, in the sixties where this is a character who seems to have, I don't, I don't like to use this word, but like he seems to have no self-esteem or at least he has no concept of, of exactly who he is. He is the beach boys. Mm -hmm. The other, the other members, good for them. They do great, Mm -hmm. but he is, he writes the songs. And if the song is a big critical hit, then everyone gets, everyone's very happy with him. If it goes poorly, they're, they're upset with him, but either way, they're always coming back to him. Mm-hmm. Now I'm sure that the the idea of the Beach Boys touring without him and the fact that they can still get a crowd and all that I'm sure in his own mind he thinks well I'm I'm unnecessary at least the performance aspect of mm-hmm. these songs but the fact that he does not quite that he will defer emotionally to whether it be his father or the psychiatrist or Mike Love, or basically anybody that he will just jump to what they think. Mm-hmm. He'll still stand up for himself because I think he understands a good song when he hears it, or when, yeah. even if he wrote it. So yeah. he'll do that, but for the most part, he feels like he's not in a position of saying, well, this is the song. Mm-hmm. And uh, do you want to write it? Do you want to write a different song? Because uh, you're welcome to. Like, he doesn't, it's never that. Yeah. It's as if the music is the only thing that he's ever sure of. So that's yeah. the only thing that he ever feels like he can argue. But even then, the only way he can ever argue that is, is like, this is what it should be. This is better. Yeah. And if no one listens listens to him, then no one listens to him. And there's nothing yeah. he can do about it. Yeah. And it's... Uh, it's such a fully I it's it's strange to say this because there he's played by two different actors but I feel like he's a very fully realized character. Mm-hmm. Um and I more so than I feel like I'm used to seeing in a biopic. Um yeah, with, with the true. exception of something like Capote where I think that is a 100% realized mm. character but when I watch stuff like um Ray mm. or or even Lincoln which the in which Abraham Lincoln is played wonderfully by uh Daniel Day-Lewis it's just they write I, they're written in a way that I feel like 
it's not that they're inauthentic. It's that they're just unknowable. Yeah. And part of me feels like, look, I get that these, especially in the case of somebody like Abraham Lincoln, I get that they do that they do seem above us and indeed maybe they are above us as far as what they're able to accomplish and as far as their potential but you need to make them relatable you need to make them full-fledged because the fact is though abraham lincoln was the president of the united states during the civil war and that's a giant a giant thing even at the time uh the scene where he's arguing with his wife is to me the most uh authentic scene in the film Hmm. because even presidents argue with their wives, you know, and I'm not saying bring people down to our level. What I'm saying is acknowledge they are at our level and then just go with that. Mm-hmm. You can show all the other stuff. That's fine, too. But, you know, just all of these people, they might be geniuses, but that doesn't make you a genius at everything. Right. And so you need to. Sh- so show us the part where they're not geniuses yeah. because they still had to deal with that. Yeah. You know, it was another movie I feel like did that well was uh i feel like selma did that well also i think so too partially i think because it's more of an ensemble and i think maybe, uh, maybe. it had to show him working with other people yeah which yeah. meant which immediately diminishes him yeah but then it also shows him giving a speech where all eyes are on him and yeah. he rises to the occasion yeah yeah i think you're absolutely right yeah. um so yeah i i can't speak highly enough about the way the character is written emotionally the way he's played we'll talk about another uh, a couple other actors and then we'll move on um so when we left the 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 theater you specifically locked into elizabeth banks as melinda the the woman that encounters future brian and gets romantically involved with him and then starts to see, oh my gosh, his life is not great. And Mm -hmm. what can I do about it? Mm -hmm. Um, What was it about her specifically that you responded to? There's something about, and I think I was saying to you, she's not an actress that I think of that often as like, oh, she's a great actress. Um, And, and, you know, not, not to disparage her at all. I think it's just that doesn't occur to me oftentimes. Um, but I, I think she is really a great actor, and I think this is this is a. I feel like I noticed it a lot in this movie because she takes something that is uh, kind of foreign from the reality of today. Like, first of all, it's period piece, mm-hmm. and uh, second of all, she's dating a super famous person. Yeah. So I don't know. There's there's a. It seems like. I expect that to just be distant from me and not have a lot mm-hmm. of relatability. And, and somehow it is somehow she seems very realistic. She seems very relatable. Like I feel like I'm able to understand the, how she feels in attaching to this situation more than I expected to. Well, I think as an actress, she, there's a, First off, she's, you know, very attractive. She's very beautiful. Mm. Um, and I think she, but also she's a, often a, a comedic presence, even yeah. so, in something like Hunger Games, yeah. where I think she does marvelous, yeah. um, especially in the second film. Um, the, uh, there's a, there's a bigness to her as an actress. There's yeah. a theatricality to her as an actress. There's a, uh, this sounds terrible. I don't mean, I won't say, uh, I was going to say an artificiality, but that sounds so negative. Mm-hmm. It's just there's a there's a heightened quality to her as an actress. Well, and um, I, when I think of her on like Thirty Rock yeah. or even like Forty Year Old Virgin, or where I first Hot American her. Summer, Wet Hot American <laughs> Summer, she was in uh, W when she plays Laura B- Laura Bush. Um, she was in a film that I saw that was not very good called I think called People Like Us, 
where she's in it with uh, Chris Pine, in which she's playing just this, uh, this, you know, single mother. And I remember in seeing that, it's a movie nobody saw, nor they, nor should they, it's not that good. Um, but I remember seeing that and, and feeling what you are talking about, which is, oh, this isn't the Elizabeth Banks that I've come to know. Yeah. Like, though the character is funny, she's funny in a naturalistic way. Um, to me, it's almost like when Julia Louis-Dreyfus was in Enough Said. Oh, yeah. Whether it be Veep or, or uh, Seinfeld, she plays characters that are funny in a heightened, heightened way. Right. And then she creates this very, just a lived-in, everyday type of character mm-hmm. that is way more relatable than you would ever think she could be. Yeah. Um, and so... I wasn't necessarily surprised by it because I had seen her do this in another film. Mm-hmm. But if you haven't seen that, then I can absolutely understand it. Because you have an expectation when you see her yeah. on screen. Yeah. Um, and what I like is that it's the character is, is very empowered. It'd be very easy for her to just be written as two-dimensional and like, okay, so this is the woman who comes in his life and saves him. Got it. Right. You know? But... I genuinely felt there are scenes where she's thinking, is this worth it? Yeah. I have to fight for this guy and yeah, he might be famous, but this is a big headache and I might lose. Is this worth it? Yeah. Or is this even the right thing? And I feel like she, she always knows that it's good to get him away from, from Landy. Yeah. But like, I think she wonders like, is my involvement, like, am I the one who should be doing this? Like, right. Is this my job? Yeah. I just were. And there's a scene where he, it very insidiously kind of mentions her own history to her, just showing that like he's done his research almost as a dressing down of saying like, who are you? Right. We're dealing a, with a very famous musical genius. And I am a certified uh, psychiatrist who are you? Mm-hmm. What makes you think you have any right to be in this, yeah. much less that you know what's best for him? Yeah. Why are you even part of this equation? And I think in that scene, she understands like, yeah, that's a good point. Who am I? Yeah. Uh, yeah. And she plays that well. And uh, and there are times when I genuinely, because I didn't know the full story, um, there are times when I thought like, yeah, I feel like she's going to drop this. I feel mm-hmm. like she's going to be like, this is not for me. I'm leaving. Mm-hmm. Um And, uh, now obviously if you know the whole story, you know that that's not going to happen. But if you don't know, as I didn't, um, then it's worth, it's all in the performance that, that I really didn't know if this is going to be like the person who could have saved him and didn't, Mm -hmm. um, or maybe tried to save him, but then didn't wind up with him. Yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, I thought she was really great. And then. So lastly, as far as characters, we'll get to Dr. Eugene Landy. That is the psychiatrist character from the 80s, played by Paul Giamatti in the best, per, in the best role he's had since, I'd say, John Adams. Hmm. Um, I've seen him in like smaller parts here and there, and he always does great. He's always very dependable. He had a very great small role in Cosmopolis. Did you ever see that? Oh, no. Oh, I think you'd like it, and he's really great. I'd like to see it. Um, I think it's on Netflix. Uh, yeah, I remember... This is a difficult role as well because we are not meant to sympathize with him. We are meant to think almost immediately that there's something off about his relationship with Brian. Yeah. But anytime he anytime he explains specifically to Elizabeth Banks the role that he plays, he is reasonable. He mm-hmm. is con- he's very convincing. Yeah. 
and you start to think, well, you know what? He's been in this a lot longer than I have been. Mm-hmm. Maybe he does know. Yeah. You start to think like, well, you, you very much understand why people would listen to him. Sure. Yeah. Even down to like Brian's own family. Yeah. It's it, there's, there's, he can turn on authoritative compassion mm-hmm. or compassionate authority, however you want to say it, um, which is what a doctor is. Yeah. Someone who can relate to you, but also has a job to do mm-hmm. and can't let his personal feelings enter into the job. And so, uh, so those scenes, I, I think those are the best scenes because it's easy to play. The character as just evil. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are scenes when the character is just a particularly kind of slimy. Um, but you need to show that he is, that there's a reason he's been allowed this level of, of authority in Brian's life. Yeah. Um, but then also some of it is the way the character is written, but also just the way Giamatti plays him and knowing what to play up that you, you get a, a huge sense of who this guy is with just a couple of hints here and there. You and I uh, put together a theory as we were leaving uh, the, the-, the theater that, um, that, okay, this is a guy who loves show business, probably wanted to be in it when he was younger, mm-hmm. uh, is excited to be a part of it in some way, yeah. which is why he goes from being to, it's like, okay, psychiatrist, and then being a psychiatrist that Brian sees every day. Okay, I can buy that. Legal guardian, okay, that's a little weird, but you know what? Fair enough. Manager, producer, what? Yeah. This guy has no, what makes this guy think he can be a producer? It's just like, Brian is literally his in for Mm -hmm. everything he's ever wanted to do. And he's living in a huge house in Malibu or somewhere that Brian owns. Yeah. He's, you know, hanging out with rich and famous people hangers on you know he's got money he's got like connections to fame and yeah it's all the stuff that people want and And throughout it all i feel like he still thinks he's doing right by brian yeah like do you think so or do you think he sees himself that he does i think it's that he certainly doesn't i don't think he he is aware that he is scamming this famous guy this rich famous guy yeah um but he's certainly very possessive of him and, and that sort of thing and, yeah. and, and knows that. But, uh, yeah, and I think Paul Giamatti does a, a really great job. I mean, the scene, he's just as powerful in the scenes when he's being quiet and reasonable as when he's yelling at the top of his lungs. And I think that speaks to him understanding how this character works. Yeah. Um, so uh, I'm trying to think, are there any other elements uh, artistically that you responded to in the film? I, I wanted to talk about the the way they approach the sound design and the music design. Okay, yeah. Because um, I thought that was really interesting because there's a there's a lot of talk about him hearing the music, Brian hearing the music in his head mm-hmm. and kind of trying to get it out there and almost, almost hearing it to the point where it's maybe oppressive. Mm-hmm. Um, and the there's a lot of moments that they use the sound design to create that illusion where you're kind of hearing pieces that are pieces from a lot of actual beach boy songs. Sometimes just, you know, the, the they'll mix a uh, harmony from one with a drum beat from another, with a guitar no. riff from another, and it all kind of flowing together in, uh, something that sounds kind of beautiful and cacophonous at the same time. Mm-hmm. 
And I think that, that to me sort of speaks to what I imagine when I think of a musical genius that way, who's has this music and then they're trying to then almost like they're channeling something like they're tapping into something that is bigger than them. Right. Not that they're creating it, not that it originates with them, but that it was always there and they've been chosen as the vessel or something. Right. Yeah. Almost like a prophet. Yeah. And just the, the, I feel like that heightens the, the sense of the, uh, how difficult it is to get it out and to, mm-hmm. to make it happen. Like when it's, I, I think I've maybe felt that a little, you know, not to that degree, definitely, but I, I feel like anybody who uh, has artistic passions knows the idea of hearing something or, or understanding something in your head and then trying to, whether it be to write it down or to, to create the tune or, or whatever it is to, to get it out. One of the most pretentious things I ever said, but completely believed, um, and probably still do believe if I'm thinking about it, um, is back when I would write scripts and stuff. There mm-hmm. are scripts where it's like, I, I, I prided myself on character and dialogue. Mm-hmm. No, the story wasn't great, but uh, <laughs> you know, the stuff that people come to see. Um, but, uh, and I found, and this is how I described it, and I'm so sorry for how I'm, how I'm about to sound. If you create a strong enough character and then you're writing them, after a while, I'm so sorry. After a while, it's like they're telling you what they're going to say. Mm-hmm. You're, not, you're not telling. And, and often when I would try to do that, like I had a line that worked. that was like, oh, this is a really good line. And I, and I would start to write a scene with that line in mind. But the character I had created doesn't completely fit with that line and eventually it's as though the character himself was saying i'm not saying that (laughs) it doesn't work that is not me and you start to think as though they are dictating to you Mm -hmm. what their lines are going to be i know that's super cheesy (laughs) but i feel like you're a writer and you've written character stuff and you know like you're the writer you're in charge the character will say it if you want them to and yet you know that this character, it's as though they're another person and it would be out of character. It wouldn't, you know, if there are things that if I said it, you'd be like, that doesn't sound like Tyler. Why is he saying that? Yeah. And after a while, the characters that you're creating sound like that as well. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And it's a very strange thing, but I, yeah. I, I kind of understand what you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so I liked, I liked the way they, they did that and kind of, uh, I guess, imagined that. Uh, yeah. And I do like the way that they used music in general. Uh, mm-hmm. I feel like with musicians, you can do that more so than with like, uh, or sorry, like musical biopics is, mm-hmm. is what I mean. Um, as opposed to like a writer where, yeah. unless you're going to have somebody read their work aloud, mm-hmm. you know, then it's tough or you can do it with a painter as well. Cause you can mm-hmm. see a visual representation of what they do. Um, and you can see the process of creation, but, um, but yeah, with this, by they just keep coming back to songs in you know often songs that we know about mm-hmm. and that we've heard many times and it just it's a way of it's a nice little uh touchstone of like this is do you remember this okay this is the guy this is the guy that made it uh this thing that was a big part of your life and that you maybe you grew up loving this is the guy that made it and so it just it just kept to me, it goes a long way in, in reminding you of why, again, why you're watching this film. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they weren't too uh, sparse with it. Yeah. So, um, okay. So we'll move, well, I'll, I'll talk about one last element, which will move us into the companion film, which will move us into the theme and then we'll finish up. Um, 
Another thing that I really liked, there's a character named Murray Wilson. He is uh, Brian's father and the guy who I believe was the manager of the band for a while. And then they ma- then they mm-hmm. fired him, yeah. which I have to assume is it's got to be pretty tough when your children fire you. Yeah. Um, and he's played by Bill Camp, an actor that I that first came on my radar um, with Compliance. Did you see Compliance? Yeah. Okay, yeah. you know who he is, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, tough, certainly a tough, Compliance is a tough movie to watch, uh, but I really thought, all the acting was wonderful, but I thought he especially, I remember from a, a, as a supporting character, just thought like, wow, this guy really has locked into the, like, I completely believe that this person exists. Um, and then I saw, and then I've seen him in a couple other things here and there. Um, and he's only, in, I think two scenes, uh, two full scenes in, um, love and mercy. And he plays this character with just a very specific type of authority and a very specific type of air. He is not, I don't think he's physically abusive. I don't think he's even necessarily verbally abusive. It's more just he's so withholding, hmm. and it's this uh, it's this idea of I won't give you I won't give you affirmation I won't give you approval, and if I hold back, then you'll just keep coming to me. Now I don't think I don't know if the character is actually aware that he's doing that, but I think he sees the benefit, especially with somebody like Brian, mm-hmm. who sees almost everybody as an authority figure, and then his own father who. You know, Brian is is pitching God Only Knows, mm-hmm. a song that is maybe one of the best American songs of the last hundred years, if well, I guess ever. Mm-hmm. Um, he's pitching that to his father, and his dad just doesn't get it. Or maybe he does, but he there's no way he's going to let his son know. His son, who has fired him. Yeah. There's no way he's going to let him know how good this thing is. Um, as a way of, almost as a way of just saying like, you know, uh, without actually saying it, but saying like, man, you are just rudderless without me. You mm-hmm. have no idea what's good. You have mm-hmm. no idea what's bad. Yeah. But, you know, hey, that's, that's the way it goes. I guess that's what happens when you fire your father. Um, and it's a very, it's, it's very uh, insidious. Again, I don't think, I'm not sure if the character knows he's doing it. But then there's stuff like he shows up in the studio later and he's signed another band that's just like the beach boys and he's good. He's going to manage them into being more successful than the beach boys. Yeah. So it's just like, man, what a, what a monstrous person. <laughs> and I mean, you know, know more about the beach boys. I mean, do you know more about their father and the, the role that he played in their lives? Like I said that he's not verbally abusive. He's not physically abusive. Was he actually that? Or I, I think there are, I think there are stories of him being physically abusive. Okay. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I think he was, and, and that's another connection to, to Landy, um, is I, I think he kind of wanted a little bit to be famous as well. Yeah. And that was kind of his, his ticket to it. And so he was very controlling over, yeah. over their stuff, um, which is why it was such a problem when he, uh, when they, when they fired him. But, um, yeah, he still continued to try and do stuff afterwards, like, you know, like is shown in the film and finding other bands. And there's even, there's an album. Uh, I forget what it was, but, uh, someone was just telling me about it the other day, an album that he put together. That's like a bunch of different, it's like a collection thing from mm-hmm. the late sixties, maybe even early seven. I think it is late sixties. Um, that's like Murray Wilson presents or something like that yeah. where he put his name on it. Right. Um, and, 
so I don't know that that's that weird thing again of him just kind of wanting to be famous. And it's not like he was any kind of musical genius or anything. Like he, he just was able to get his kids famous. Yeah. I mean, there is, there's a, something to be said for like knowing how to maneuver through a business, right. through, through a, an industry that is kind of impenetrable. Right. And his ability to do that, um, you know, good for him. And it takes a very special kind of person that can do that. But at the same time, yeah, it's, I mean, it's a, it's a very standard type of, of story, which is a parent who wants something, but then they can't get it themselves. And so they put their kids into it and then their kids can, and then they're just sort of living through their children. Right. Um, incidentally, I, I should say that, uh, you know, eventually if I have a son or daughter, they will be film critics (laughs) and they're going to be the best film critics in the world. So, and then they can say, yeah, my dad taught me about movies. Yeah. So I'll be kind of the kingmaker anyway. Um, that'll make them love you so much. Absolutely. But more importantly, it'll make the world love me. Um, (laughs) so uh so this this relationship that that uh, brian has with his father and then he has with landy um just it's there's there's very much a cyclical nature to it i'm sure that's partly one of the reasons that the writers chose to tell the story this way is this idea that like brian is always going to come back to this thing Mm -hmm. um maybe you know, to get his father's approval or to maybe uh, whether he knows it or not. And I'm sure it's very unconscious as well. This idea of like, like, well, maybe, you know, maybe I'll get it right with this father figure, maybe Mm -hmm. or or whatever. Um, And eventually by the end of the film, there's this very, I won't say psychedelic because that has maybe too much of a connotation to it, but there's a very uh, surreal sequence where you have the two different Brian's, coming together you have landy you have murray you've got brian's former wife you have his new girlfriend and they're all just coming together uh in this montage uh basically showing that like the past is the present is the future it's just it's all inside his mind it's all there Mm -hmm. all the time it's always the same as for the the fact that he's lying in the bed for a lot of it yeah. made me think like this this is very two thousand one inspired. I have had that thought. Yes, I think that can't have escaped the filmmaker. Yeah, and just you know, and just that all of this is just the 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 word I I come back to is swirling. The way that this is just swirling around in his head all the time, and just it's enough to like drive a person crazy, except he already was kind of crazy. Mm. Um, and so as I was thinking of a companion film, as I mentioned, I, I was thinking about a movie like shine and yet somehow shine is told in a very straightforward way. Mm-hmm. Um, there's none of this. There's no, uh, there's no surrealism. There's no confusion. It's all, it's all pretty linear. Um, so then I thought of a movie that, uh, seems like an odd companion film, and yet it actually fits, in my opinion, thematically very well, which is David Cronenberg's Spider, which he directed in 2002. It's written by Patrick McGrath, based on his novel. It stars Ray Fiennes as a character nicknamed Spider, who uh, is, I don't remember exactly, he might be schizophrenic. Um, and you see his working class upbringing with uh, uh, parents who... They do their best, but they're kind of neglectful and sometimes maybe straight up abu- uh, abusive. Um, and then he does some stuff. I won't say what, because a lot of people haven't seen it, including Josh. Um, <laughs> 
he does some stuff that lands him in a in a mental institution, and then he is uh, released, even though he probably shouldn't be. He still deals with this stuff, and he's he has a slightly better handle on reality, but not much. Hmm. And you so and you soon realize that that the past and the present and and certainly the future that they're all jumbled up in his mind as well. This is they do this by having. Um, uh, the same, not all the same actors, but they'll have like an actor play a character from his past and then his present as well. Or more specifically, they'll have, you know, in in this case, I'll say, uh, Miranda Richardson plays characters from his past. And then Lynn Redgrave plays a character in his present. Uh, but then over the course of the film, Miranda Richardson starts playing that character. And you just start to see that this is how, there's no escaping the past. Like the past mm. is the present. Like it's it's all the same. It's as though time does not exist. Um, that it's all just jumbled together. It's not a straight line. It's a string that has just been balled up. Mm. Um, and so the character is just trying to figure out what to do about this. And and so and it's a it's it's a film that I really respond to. It's it's David Cronenberg, but it's you know. It, He's known for his his body horror, but I think he started to get away from that a little bit starting in, I think, 99 when he made uh, Existence. And even then, there was some really... Did you see ever ever see Existence? Yeah, there were the the people plug into the... <laughs> to the very organic-looking uh, console. Yeah. Ugh. Tough. <laughs> um, but I think with this, he started moving into a different kind of horror. Not that it's a horror movie. It's definitely a drama. But it's it's very psychological, and it's almost like he started he in this film he does for the brain what the fly does for the body, um, which is just showing it disintegrate and how scary that is to mm-hmm. what you know. One of the reasons that I that that the fly is a horror movie, even though it's it's more dramatic than anything else, is just the horror of your body turning against you and there's nothing you can do about it. Yeah. You, you could call it a metaphor for aging. You could call it a metaphor for, you know, cancer or disease. Yeah. A lot of people were talking about AIDS at the time. Too, yeah. I oh, think. that absolutely. And, uh, you know, so, and, and the fact that you just, you have no control over it. and as, mm. and as I was talking about before, um, the idea that, that spider, that his own mind just won't, leave him alone Mm -hmm. it won't make sense of the world it won't make sense of time being a thing that passes and that something that happened 20 years ago happened 20 years ago it didn't just happen yesterday Mm -hmm. um and just the 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 way that it just holds him hostage and that's sort of what i feel i kind of got the same feeling about brian uh is that the stuff that the the way it cre- the his paranoia and his you know mental illness the way it just creeps in and starts taking over and his own fear of that and just what that the the pers- the, the way it makes him lose perspective um, and you start to wonder if like if he'd gotten the therapy that he needed instead of the therapy that Landy provided mm-hmm. um, that maybe he wouldn't well not maybe he definitely wouldn't be in the position that he's in yeah chiefly maybe he wouldn't allow himself to be in the position of being dominated by landy who is basically a second abusive father figure mm-hmm. um and so it's just there's this odd element of you know we because we're living 
in a very linear way, we can point to what happened last week and say that's in the past. But if you want to, but you know, if if you want to go deeper, like objectively, we know that's in the past. And yet, if we remember it, if it's a happy thing, then something is released in our brain that makes us feel good. If it's a sad thing, something is released in our brain that makes us feel bad. So in that sense, the past is still very present with us. Like, that never goes away. You might toughen up to it a little bit, but it's never going to go away completely, the, the emotional reaction to that thing. Um, and it reminds me of a book. Now, you, Josh, you know that I'm not necessarily a big John Eldridge fan. Mm-hmm. Um, but he did write a book with a guy named Brent Curtis, who I believe actually died before the book. Uh, I think he died tragically in like a uh, uh, like a climbing like a accident or, or yeah. something. Uh, before I think before the book was finished, and so um, it's a, film, a book called uh, "The Sacred Romance," and it's it's a good book in general. I don't love it, but there are a couple chapters that I really like, and I think the third or fourth chapter is about arrows, and that when you're younger. Um, and younger could be a relative term. Like if you're 60 years old, this could be something that happened when you were 40, you know, just mm-hmm. when you were younger than you are now, things happen that shape your view of the world and your view of life. And it could be somebody, you know, saying something to you. It could be a relationship that goes sour. It could be loss. It could be failure or whatever. Something happens and it's like an arrow gets shot into you and you might get the arrow out and you might get it and you might stop the bleeding, but the scar is still there. And when that happens, you make a little mental note of, okay, can't let that happen again. So what were the circumstances that allowed that to happen? Okay. So I need to avoid those circumstances. And it talks about the vow that you make, which is I'm never going to let myself be hurt in that way ever again. And, but of course life goes on and and it will happen in a different way. And then you make a vow about that. And then you just, and before you know it, you're an adult and you have just, and you've got all these scars and you've made all these vows. And it's just about trying to control your own pain and make sure that doesn't happen and uh, ever again and that sort of thing. So mm. it's a chapter that I, that I actually really like in a book that I think is by far the best thing that John Eldridge has ever done. Hmm. Um, and, um, and so these movies just got me th- and just got me thinking about that book, got me thinking about the nature of the past and being wounded. And while I do acknowledge that both films have mental illness as well, and that will, make everything much harder to deal with. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I'm talking to you, I'm talking to the listener and I'm sure, you know, you guys are pretty lucid right now. You don't have to worry about, uh, you know, some of the stuff that Brian Wilson, certainly that the character of spider have to worry about. So you might be better equipped to say, okay, this thing happened to me in the past and I can absolutely draw a line between that happening and how I'm reacting right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I guess what I wanted to talk about is we have these characters for whom the past is the present. They're constantly trying to correct what happened or avoid what happened or relive what happened in certain ca- in the case of Spider. Um they're trying to get it right. They're trying to undo a wrong or whatever the case may be. And in doing so, it makes them miserable there and it makes them susceptible to other things that maybe they wouldn't be otherwise. Hmm. Um, and so I just kind of wanted to talk about that a little bit. I've got, I certainly have uh, some Bible verses here. Um, 
about, you know, when we talk about Christianity and we talk about faith, we use words like forgiveness and redemption Mm -hmm. and, you know, renewal and all of these words. And all of them are about the past. You know what I mean? Like Mm -hmm. you forgive something because something was done to you in the past and you are choosing to not let it control your present. Mm -hmm. Um, Obviously people can define, there are a lot of different aspects to forgiveness, not just that, but do you feel like that's an okay characterization of what forgiveness is? Yeah. Yeah. Um, And so I feel like it's, it's one of the things that fascinates me about Christianity is that it acknowledges that, you can't get away. You can't really get away from your past. It will always be there. And obviously there are going to be, uh, physical uh, consequences to that, that you can't necessarily get away from. But what the, the appeal to me of Christianity is the idea that, that there are spiritual or one could say cosmic consequences that you don't necessarily have to live with, which Mm -hmm. also means that you don't have to then put those consequences on yourself. Yeah. You don't have to fix it or anything. I think a lot of us have a tendency to think about the past. Uh, We hold on to it as if in, in a way, as if there's still something we can do about it. Right. As if like somehow we'll be able to make that better, make it so that didn't happen. Um, But uh, I think part of Christianity re- releases us from that idea that we, this is something we still need to carry with us and we need to repair somehow. Yeah. Um, while it is something that we, we may not be able to totally separate ourselves from it's, uh, it can be renewed. It can be changed because we can be changed as people. Yeah. And it's, and I, and I know that for myself, I will, I will tend to put myself kind of through the ringer if I do something wrong, even if I've asked forgiveness for it, um, because I think there's a lack of trust for, uh, uh, for God, um, or lack of trust of God, um, where it's like, yes, 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 I'm sure you forgive me. That's all well and good. But you know what? Just in case, I will still do my due penance and I will feel very, very bad. I will punish myself mentally for this all the time. That way, just in case, this forgiveness thing that he promises me just in case he doesn't really mean it. Uh, now I've got, I'm ready for that. You know, (laughs) it's a nice plan B. It's a nice, horrible safety net. Um, and so, but I remember I, um, recently I, I had this, uh, moment where I had done something very wrong and I felt really bad about it. And, uh, for some reason, you know, usually I view God as a, I believe the way I characterize it is a disapproving principle just with <laughs> okay. his arms folded and just quietly just shaking his head back and forth, just not happy with what you did. Like, what are you doing in my office again? Come on. <laughs> um, and of course, and, and the idea of the arms being crossed is a thing that I always thought about. Hmm. Um, and uh, for some reason, I just, uh, I was thinking about it uh, recently after I had done this, after I had done this stupid thing and just, and I really felt, uh, God. And I think I had emailed you and a bunch of other people, uh, about this, that, uh, I almost felt like God just did me a favor in that moment and just said, all right, he's just going to keep beating himself up about this. Okay. I'm going to put this image in his head just for a minute, just to give him whether he wants it or not. And so 
And rather than the arm, I, I, I pictured the arms uncrossing and just wrapping around me and just the idea of like, no, it doesn't matter this thing you do. I mean, obviously mm-hmm. it matters, but, but that doesn't matter as far as my forgiveness of you. Like it, you did it. It's in the past. There might be consequences in the real world and you have to mm-hmm. deal with that obviously, but there are no consequences with me Yeah, and it's done. Mm-hmm. Like it's, it's interesting that, you know, God lives outside of time and yet he is absolutely willing to let stuff that happened in the past be in the past mm-hmm. or not exist at all, mm-hmm, which yeah. I think is, is amazing. And so, so I want to talk, so that's of course about things that we've done, but it also can be things that have been done to us. The Bible is always saying like the way that God has forgiven you, you need to forgive other people. And that, again, that... I have a hard time with that mm-hmm. because as, as I think I've said on the show, while I recognize objectively I'm incorrect when I say what I'm about to say, <laughs> I think emotionally I believe it 100%. And that is that person to person forgiveness is not possible. Mm. Now, the Bible says it is, and thus I have to believe that, but I very cynically think that it is not possible Mm. that you could do something to me and I won't be able to forgive you. Oh, I can say it. And I might not, I might even mean it, but the next time you do something even similar to it, Oh, here it comes again. Mm -hmm. You know, I'll react as though I certainly will not react as though it's the first time I it's ever been done to me. Uh, and I will not. And if, if I do something to you and then I do it again, even though you've said you've forgiven me, I certainly will react to, react to that as though like, yeah, yeah, that's all well and good. But we know that if I do this again, it's all over. Yeah. Whatever that might mean, by the way. <laughs> um, and so, you know, um, and I'm sorry to, to focus so much into the idea of forgiveness, but when talking about the past, from a Christian standpoint, you will eventually arrive at the concept of forgiveness. And mm-hmm. so... Um, so I want to, so we've got a whole bunch of Bible verses to read here and I want to basically just plow through them and then we'll pro- probably start wrapping up, honestly. Um, uh, but first of all, I actually have this little quote by Oswald Chambers, leave the broken, irreversible past in God's hands and step out into the invincible future with him. Uh, I like just the phrasing of broken and irreversible. Like there's such a hopelessness to that, but it's like, yeah, but you're leaving it in God's hands and he's the one, he tends to deal with hopeless things pretty well. Um, so moving, okay. Philippians three verses 10 through 14. I want to know Christ. Yes. To know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. And so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead. I like the term straining because mm-hmm. it implies it's difficult. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, it doesn't say forgetting what is behind and casually walking towards <laughs> what is ahead. <laughs> and aimlessly rolling forwards. Yeah, just, um, so uh, Galatians 5.1. It, fr- it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Now that may not sound like the past or anything like that. But uh, what I do, I like that first verse and it struck me as repetitive, but then I, I got it. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Now that does seem redundant 
and unnecessary, but I think it's like Christ did not set you free so that you continue to enslave yourself mm-hmm. to, you know, just hatred of yourself and just, and, and also being sl- a slave to sin and that sort of thing, but also being slave to the spiritual consequences of sin. Like he set you free. So be free. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, uh, an analogy that I've heard used and our pastor has certainly used it is the idea that uh, you're in a jail cell and then somebody comes along and opens the door. So officially you're free, but often we choose to just stay in the cell. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's like, no, I opened the door. I freed you so that you can actually be free. So just go through the door and you'll be fine. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Matthew 11 verses 28 through 29. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened and I will give you rest Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Um, as I started putting these verses together, I, I wanted to move into uh, tonally a different idea, which is, you know, when you're living in the past, it is, as Oswald Chambers says, it's irreversible, it's broken, there's nothing you can do about it. And like what you were saying, it's an attempt to control it as if you can somehow change it, but you can't change it. What you can change is your emotional reaction to it. Yeah. And I think a lot of people will mistake one for the other. Mm-hmm. And, and in doing so, they basically just create so much toil for themselves. I don't know why I say themselves. I'll say ourselves mm-hmm. because yeah. I'm very much included in this. Yeah. Um, and we just create so much like sweat and, frustration and tension and it just feels like 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 as i okay so i'm at the moment like the way i'm talking like i'm physicalizing it yeah and like you'll notice like my hands are clenched (laughs) and like my and like all my muscles are tense like because that you know look it's an old acting thing (laughs) i don't mind telling you that i did win a certain award uh, 15 years ago anyway um best actor state of missouri it's no big deal is that the one um so So naturally, I just physicalize things. You know, I'm just all very much in the moment. Anyway, uh, but that's what it is. It's just constantly tensing. And so by letting go of the past and by forgiving somebody else, by forgiving yourself, whatever the case may be, you are, you're actually, it's that idea of like letting go of something. And, and it's such an easy phrase to say, but like you're clinging to this thing that is hurting you, but you won't let go of it. And if you Mm -hmm. let it go, not only is the thing no longer hurting you, but you're also not as tense. Yeah. And so I want to talk about these ideas of just when God, uh, when, you know, when the Bible talks about um, just giving things over to God, it, it, the, the imagery that, that, that it then uses is just like, just rest and just like peace. Mm -hmm. And, um, so I, there's another couple verses here. Uh, I'll read the first one, and then I'll have you read the second one. Mm-hmm. So Isaiah 43, 18 through 19. Forget the former things. Do not dwell on the past. See, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? I am making a way in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland. First off, I will say, maybe because it's a T.S. Eliot thing, I've always liked the word wasteland. Mm. Um just because I feel like there's no better, I, I like what it what it evokes. Yeah, it's a yeah. whole land of waste. <laughs> now you can you can say waste as though uh, something fecal, or you can just say like it's of no use to anybody. Yeah, you can't do anything with it. Yeah, and it's a whole land of it. And so the idea of away in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland, like 
if there is stream, if there's a stream, there's life. If there's water, there's life. And suddenly this wasteland is no longer a waste. It is an actual new thing with the promise of life and the promise of, you know, hope and usefulness as opposed to once again being a waste. Mm-hmm. Um, so the last one is all of Psalm 23, which I'm sure many of you know. But uh, Josh, you're going to read it right now. All right. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. All right. So, obviously a lot of people know this this verse in general. Um, I wanted to focus, obviously, on green pastures and quiet waters. Mm -hmm. Uh, I will say, uh, you know, everybody has a a different, like, series of noises that to them are the height of relaxation. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mountain stream for me, by the way. That's a good one. Is, I always uh, like those little machines they have. I have like the water moving in it. Yeah, Something it's relaxing. anytime I get a new phone, it's the first thing I'll download is the <laughs> the little white noise app, and it'll have like oh, here. and what oh, and what I like is there are some where they have like a, a library of sounds that'll just keep running. You know, you can set it to run for an hour, and it'll run for an hour. Mm. Um, but you can mix and match. Ah, yeah. So there's one of like dripping water, and then there's one of like thunder and rain and wind. So what I basically did, uh, you can put them all together. So it was like, I was, uh, I'm so sorry. This is dumb. (laughs) Um, It's like I was indoors and there was a raging storm outside and there's a slight drip in here, but I'm safe and I'm fine. Mm -hmm. That puts me right to sleep (laughs) because it, 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 it's like things are bad out there, but I'm okay. Mm -hmm. I know that's, there's a weird emotional component to it. Yeah. Um, But yeah, Mountain stream, hard to beat uh, for me. I also like the sound of the ocean, but uh, I don't know. Just water running over rocks. No, that's, that's a good you one. You can't beat it. Yeah. Um, and so, of course, obviously, if it were easy to do, we'd all do it. Forgive mm-hmm. and not live in the past. Yeah. Um, Except a, a peaceful yeah life separate from those things that we dwell on yeah and just and it's and especially if somebody has wronged you or or you made a huge mistake that that to me is the big thing and don't get me wrong like if somebody has wronged me i tend to hold on to it but um but if you make a mistake then it's like okay well the more i hold on to that mistake the less likely it is i'll make it again so it seems very practical. Mm-hmm. And while there is something we said from, you know, for learning from a mistake, that's not the same as holding on to how you feel or how you felt when you made that mistake. Mm-hmm. It's not the same thing at all. Um, because what I have found is that when I focus so much on a mistake that I have made, yes, I often don't make that mistake again. But what often happens is I'm so focused on that one that I wind up, you know, the phrase that I use is like, I will back away from something and not realize that I'm backing right into something else. Yeah. Um, And so, whereas if you just let it go and live with it, not live with it, but like live with the lesson that you learned from it, Mm -hmm. then that frees you up to to look and see other other possible problem areas. Yeah. And I was going to say too, even like... 
uh, going from one problem into another, that's, that's definitely, yeah, I agree one side of it. And I, I think it can even happen that we can fall into the same problems again. Sure. Because uh, I think it's impossible for us to, you know, to guarantee that we're never going to make the same mistake again. But if you hold on to that so much, then it'll make it even it'll make it that much worse every time it happens again. Yeah, absolutely. And the the you know the go to on this is like porn, for example. Mm. Um, that if you if you like look at it and you hate yourself for it, as you know, is is has been the case with me and you hate yourself for it like that, you would think that guilt would be a, a crazy motivator to not do this ever again. But what, what I found happens for me is you guilt, guilt yourself into thinking like I'm a real piece of crap. I'm ne- and then it quickly turns to, I'm such a piece of crap that I'm never going to be able to resist this. Hmm. And, you wind up being very defeatist and it just makes you weaker as a person. Yeah. And then you wind up doing it again. Mm-hmm. And then it just, and then the cycle begins anew. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's actually interesting that I use the, the term cycle because that's actually what I was going to talk about. That's, that was the big thing that I was going to talk about in this episode is the idea of cycles. And that, you know, in the case of, of Brian in the film, there's the cycle of, I need to find this authority figure. And maybe if this person approves of me, maybe if this person says that what I'm doing is good, then maybe finally I can be okay. Now, again, there's also the mental illness issue, but it's just that, that merely exacerbates, I think what's already there. Um, and so, and I think we all have cycles that we get into, whether it be with other people, whether it be with ourselves, whether it be with God and, you know, the thing about getting it, you know, about a cycle is that like, it's just a wheel spinning around and you're just like a hamster in it and you're not getting, you're never going to get anywhere. Um, and so what needs to happen is you need to break the cycle, but often when you're in it, you're not in a position to do that. And so, but God is. And so, you know, it's, it's hard to do. It's, it may seem even impossible. Um, but I would suggest that, you know, if, if there's something in your life, it could be a wound that somebody else has inflicted on you. It could be a wound that you inflicted on yourself or that you inflicted on somebody else. Um, and you're just, you're not for you're, there's no forgiveness on your part, like whether it be of yourself or of somebody else, or maybe even of God. Um, I would say like pray to God to give you the power to do that and to acknowledge that it, that thing is over. It is actually over. And yes, there might still be some wounds from it, and those might never go away, but that doesn't mean you have to keep opening up the wound. Mm-hmm. You know, you can at least let it scab over and become a scar. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, you know, it's a tough thing, but I, I found that for myself, it's very helpful to, especially if somebody else has done something to you, to acknowledge that they are only human and that people make horrible mistakes all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and that you yourself could easily make that mistake as well. It's not about bringing yourself down. It's about acknowledging just the concept of human, the reality of human frailty. Um, and by the way, you can say that about yourself as well. If you've done something to somebody else that you won't forgive yourself for, um, it can just come and you feel like somehow you have made the worst mistake in the world. No the worst mistake in the world. Obviously was the Holocaust. There you go. <laughs> so as long as you didn't do that. Yeah. So if you basically, if you come up right up to the Holocaust, <laughs> but, but you know, but drop off, that's a win. You're fine. You're fine. 
let's say you kill only 10 people. Yeah. Um, that turned dark. I'm sorry. But what I'm saying is just like, <laughs> whatever, whatever terrible thing you have done, it's been done before. Like, I know it sounds weird. There's nothing so special about you that anybody expected you to be perfect. Mm-hmm. Except, of course, maybe yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm, I deal with that a lot myself, um, is wanting to be perfect. But it can actually be very freeing, to go back to this idea of freeing, this idea that you're not, and nobody expects you to be. God doesn't mm-hmm. expect you to be. That's yeah. why there's forgiveness. Um, and that it's that it's okay again there might still be earthly consequences that you need to deal with and that is it's the way it goes but that doesn't mean that you have to hate yourself because god certainly doesn't hate you Mm -hmm. and if you just accept his love of you and if you expect accept the freedom that he provides then you no no longer need to be on that hamster wheel you no longer need to just feel what is it what does it say like burdened again by the yoke of slavery you don't need to be any of that you can be free and you can be happy and you can be i don't know and you can just honestly you can live in the love and mercy what you can live in the love and mercy of god because those are the things that save us so okay we will end it there later than expected but not terrible um uh you can find me at facebook uh, you can join the, no, it's not a group. You can, you can like us on Facebook. You can find me on Twitter at more lessons. You can find Josh on Twitter at the Josh long at the Josh long. It's all there. And Hey, if you haven't seen it, check out lava Lantula. Hey, yeah. Uh, I'm sure it's on VOD or something like that. I'm sure you can find it's, it somewhere. It's on your TV right now, right as now. we speak right now. They Could put a be. lot of money into this. They're going to show it a million times. Oh yeah. Um, but yeah, uh, Josh worked as the assistant director. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's a big you know, that's a big undertaking, and they, sure they trusted you with a lot. It's a lot of lava spiders. A lot of lava spiders. Boy, oh boy. Um, so, uh, so that's what Josh is up to. <laughs> um, that's where you can find his wonderful work uh, that, that he's not on this show anymore to do <laughs> is produce Lava Lantula. Lava, uh, not produce. No, sorry. Assistant yeah. Direct. There you go. Um, oh, you wish. You wish you were the producer of Lava Lantula, right? <laughs> You wish that you could have your name above that title. in that Lava Lantula. <laughs> they have already uh, greenlit a sequel. That I don't doubt it. You should get in on that. I, I hope I can. Oh, it's all happening. You got to hitch your wagon to that shooting star. Supposedly, uh, <laughs> according to the trades, the uh, the sequel is going to be titled Two Lava, Two Lantula. I heard that, and you know what? I love it. That's pretty great. Love it. <laughs> um, one could say I lava it. Hey. I'm I'm taking that from the Pixar short film Lava, which I hate. Oh, it is right. not good, not good. Okay. Uh, no, thank you. So, um, and I'm certainly not the only one that does. Um, let's see. Uh, you can email me Tyler at more than one lesson dot com. You can email Josh Josh at more than one lesson dot com. And I think that is it. Oh, you know what? Uh, there is a review that I wrote for the film The End of the Tour. That is available at morethanonelesson.com. It is a movie that I really, really love, and I highly recommend you see. Uh, whether you are familiar with the works of David Foster Wallace or not, I mostly am not. Uh, but it is still a very compelling film that I that I think people will enjoy. So uh, that is about it. Uh, thank you so much for listening. Josh, thanks for being here. You're welcome. And we'll get you next time. Bye. Bye.